Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Biblically and Beyond podcast. I'm your host, Justin Paley. And in today's episode, um, we're going to dive into part two on our series on slavery in the New Testament. And specifically in this episode, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the text themselves uh, and explore a little bit of the background on maybe what gave rise to these texts and how views of slavery in the New Testament changed over time and developed. So for uh, this part two of, of our series on slavery in the New Testament, I want to dry, uh, dive straight into the, the text themselves uh, and then uh, slowly take a more bird's eye view of, of the text in total and see what conclusions or observations can be made. So without further ado, uh, there are various texts in the New Testament that specifically address slavery. Uh, and I'm not talking about slavery uh, in, in general terms, like, you know, there are many times in the New Testament, including in the Gospels and Paul's letters and the other New Testament literature, where the word, the word in Greek is doulos, um, which essentially can be translated as as slave or servant. And so Paul oftentimes in his letter openings will say, Paul um, a servant, or sometimes translated a slave of Jesus Christ, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so in that sense, um, you know, that would not fall under the category of slavery in the New Testament, at least in the way that, that we're looking at it right now. We're more focused on texts that actually address people in slavery or address the condition of slavery. So with that little disclaimer, uh, the the way I want to split this episode up is to focus on the couple of, for lack of a better term, the authentic Pauline epistles, the the letters that we are virtually all scholars agree that Paul wrote. And there's only two letters, First uh, Corinthians and Galatians, that have any sort of reference to slavery as, as we just defined it. But most of the slavery content in the New Testament comes from the Pauline pseudepigrapha. Uh, and if you listen to our series on the pastoral epistles, uh, we got into uh, more detail about that. But for those who didn't, Pauline pseudepigrapha, what is meant by that is essentially texts that were written in Paul's name, but were not actually written by the historical Paul himself, but, but someone writing in his name sometime after his death. So the first text, um, 1 Corinthians, which is an authentic Pauline epistle, in 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul addresses slaves directly. Uh, and he says, quote, and this is from the NRSV translation, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Even if you can gain your freedom, make use of your present condition now more than ever. For whoever was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed person belonging to the Lord, just as whoever was free when called is a slave of Christ. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. In whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain with God. So this is a, a really interesting little text, um, chiefly because it's unclear exactly what Paul is saying here. He, in, in one breath, is saying, don't worry about it if you're, you're a slave right now. 
Um, but if you can gain your freedom, you know, you can go ahead and, and do it, essentially. Um, but at the same time, it's clear that Paul is not unilaterally condemning the existence or institution or even condition of slavery. Uh, he's much more concerned about uh, just this general principle of not worrying about your present state. In 1 Corinthians 7, just for context, he addresses various groups, for example, husbands and wives. And he says something similar. Uh, and what I mean by that is he says for for them that if you're unmarried, don't worry about it. If you're married, don't worry about it. Don't work to change your condition. But if you're going to have sexual relations with one another and aren't married, it's better to marry than to burn. And by that, he means have sexual relations while not married. Um, but it's the same overall message, i.e., don't worry about your present condition. The Lord is going to come back soon. All these things are going to be changed. So don't burden yourself with more worldly concerns. So although in this text, Paul is not, as we from a modern perspective might hope, have had been a little bit more uh, negative towards the institution of slavery and the fact that Christians were holding other believers and Christians in bondage, um, Paul does not unilaterally condemn that in the way that, that we would like him to. But it is consistent with his overall message, which is don't worry about your present condition, regardless of what that is, because there are more important things. So this is both at the same time, not a condemnation of slavery, but also by no means an endorsement of it. And so that's a good segue into the uh, the second and last um, clear reference to slavery as we defined it earlier in the authentic Pauline epistles. And this one comes from Galatians 3, specifically Galatians 3, uh, 27 to 28. And this is the very famous, um, oftentimes called like baptismal saying or baptismal creed that um, that a lot of people will find familiar. And it's, quote, as many of you as were baptized in the Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. So within that, um, very different than what we find in First Corinthians, obviously, but it's in a similar vein in that. Here we have Paul again stressing that essentially in Christ, um, in God's kingdom, there are no social distinctions. You know, there is neither this dichotomy of slave versus free, male versus female, etc. Because everybody is one in Christ Jesus. And so in that view, everyone is, uh, at least hypothetically, equal in that respect. Now, there is debate over what exactly Paul thinks the implications of this are. are is the implication that in the, the current state uh, of the Galatians and current Christians who are believers in Christ, that this whole distinction is um, essentially blown away and that everybody should live in equality and that there is equality between all peoples and that should be reflected in the social institutions and social relationships of the community? Or is Paul more saying this as 
for lack of a better way to put it, more of an abstract, meaning he does believe this at a fundamental level, but it, that doesn't mean that in the current world that all those distinctions are blown away, but rather when God slash Jesus comes back uh, and establishes God's kingdom on earth, once that happens, then all of those social distinctions will be wiped away. Now, me personally, I subscribe to the latter view, uh, and I think that that's also reflected in the First Corinthians passage. But there is a case to be made that um, the former uh, it, is true. Um, I, I think it's an uphill battle because it is clear from Paul's letters that there is not this social equality, at least in the sense of the banishment of all sort of social distinctions. Um, but uh, again, for us as as modern readers, you wish that Paul would be a little bit more consistent and firm in terms of his uh, convictions of, of uh, human equality. But we also have to uh, keep in mind that Paul is working in the real world. He's dealing with, with real people in real concrete historical situations in a world that's very different from ours. So we always need to keep that in mind when um, looking and analyzing these texts and also passing any sort of judgment, either good or bad, on Paul. So that does it for the authentic Paulines. And so overall, even though it's only two texts, neither of them clearly are very positive about slavery in any way, shape, or form, and are definitely at least mild, seemingly mildly negative towards at least the um, the social distinction between slave and master as seen in the baptismal formula in Galatians. But now the interesting shift comes when we get to the Pauline pseudepigrapha. And I will read a couple of the, the primary source passages, and you'll see immediately how different it is, not only from the two passages that that we just went over, but also just Paul's general attitude towards things in the, the other authentic Pauline letters. So the first passage here comes from Ephesians 6, um, specifically 6, 5 to 9. So it reads, quote, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as you obey Christ, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Render service with enthusiasm as the Lord and not to men and women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same master in heaven, and with him there is no partiality. Now, before... Um, Stopping, I do want to read uh, another uh, belated passage. This one comes from Colossians 3, specifically 3.22 to 25. And that reads, quote, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, Put yourselves into it as done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. So, uh, at, at first glance, uh, obviously these texts are 
a lot more concrete in their um, their directions and, and attitude towards slavery. Um, but again, there's also a little bit of attention here. I mean, it is clear that this person, whoever the author was of uh, Colossians and Ephesians, these are part of what in scholarship are called the household codes. So essentially, in addition to addressing slaves and masters, um, these household codes, and this holds true for those found in Ephesians and Colossians, and then later in the pastorals and in some of the other New Testament letters, which we'll touch on in a bit, they address household relationships. So often that'll be husband and wife, slave and master, and parents and children. Uh, and this is something that is well known in the Greco-Roman world. We find these, not necessarily formulaic, but these definition of relationships within the household and in relating these relationships and defining them in a hierarchical way. It's something that we know from the larger Greco-Roman world and, um, you know, various philosophers and other writers um, throughout the many centuries leading up to um, the development of early Christianity in the first century. So the author is by no means inventing something new here. But at the same time, they also add a, an interesting twist because usually the, these household codes will address slaves and masters in a way that only gives harsh direction to the slaves. So essentially something along the lines of slaves obey our masters, um, but there is no sort of reciprocal, like masters treat your slaves well, or at least that relationship is not defined in terms of a common religious belief or a common allegiance to a higher power per se. So it's interesting that this author at the same time is saying that slaves need to obey their, their masters um, because essentially it's the right thing to do, but also that the masters need to be kind to their slaves because both the slave and the master have a, a higher master in heaven, so to speak, um, which is Jesus slash God. So these texts are, now we're getting into the, the more troubling text here because obviously no matter what no matter what spin you put on it it is clear that in these passages the bible is affirming the institution of slavery and essentially playing into this larger problematic narrative that developed in later centuries of your sort of accepting your your punishment your your you're the suffering servant. The suffering is divinely ordained, and thus you you must obey the will of God, which is to have you in this position of slavery. And regardless of what you think, it's the right thing to serve your master. Do your best and do it with with maybe not kindness, but at least doing it willingly and um putting effort into it and doing it the right way. Now, obviously, from a modern standpoint, that, that is a very disturbing notion, and it's been used in many terrible ways by many people throughout all of history, or I should say throughout uh, you know, the past 2,000 years, more or less, 
to justify the institution of slavery. So that's Ephesians and Colossians. Now, there's also a couple of texts from the pastoral epistles. Uh, and the first one comes from 1 Timothy 6.1. And these, again, touch on these, these household codes. So you'll see the similarities here. So uh, here's 1 Timothy 6.1. Quote, let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful to them on the ground that they are members of the church. Rather, they must serve them all the more, since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. And then the uh, the next passage is from Titus 2, 9 to 10. And that reads, quote, tell slaves to be submit, submissive to their masters and to give satisfaction in every respect. They are not to talk back not to pilfer, but to show complete and perfect fidelity so that in everything they may be an ornament to the doctrine of God our Savior. So these passages, again, both First Timothy and Titus, part of the Pauline Pseudepigrapha, we see um, a, a similarity with what we find in Ephesians and Colossians. And before diving a little bit deeper, to uh, these two texts. I do also want to make clear that in the Pauline corpus is not the only one that, that contains these sorts of texts. We also find a similar household code of sorts in, for example, the, uh, the first letter of Peter. And that can be found in uh, 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25. And that passage reads, quote, Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. For it is a credit to you if, being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his footsteps." Okay, so that passage in, in 1 Peter, or all three passages, um, are, are certainly troubling in, in many respects. But the one in 1 Peter, I think, one is an example that this phenomenon is not uh, confined to you know, Pauline Christianity, for lack of a better word. But this was something that was a, a subject of discussion in all, essentially all facets uh, of Christianity. But also in the first Peter passage, we see this clear development of the suffering servant. The, you know, Jesus suffered uh, willingly and obediently, and thus he served as an example for what you should do as slaves and serve your masters, whether they treat you kindly or harshly. So that is a very, very um, disturbing uh, platform to base beliefs off of because that goes down a, a very dangerous uh, theological path that, again, was often used to justify the institution of slavery and justify just the idea of slave, enslaving people and that it was uh, divinely ordained or it was not a sin to actually enslave another human being. So that passage is definitely very troubling. 
but because here we're we're focusing on the the Pauline text, the Pauline corpus, and that's where most of this, this material is found, I do want to go back to the First Timothy and Titus passages. So there's clearly uh, similarities between these passages and the ones found in Ephesians and Colossians. Now, they're written by different authors. Uh, they probably come from different time periods, Colossians probably being the earliest out of the four, but Ephesians and Colossians being very, very similar to one another and having a lot of similarities. If you read through both letters, you'll see some sections that essentially read word for word uh, in terms of um, their, their similarities that the letters share. And the pastoral epistles being written most likely by one author, thus, you know, First Timothy and Titus being written by, by the same hand. But these two passages are, are different, are at least more different than the ones in Ephesians and Colossians. But again, both of these passages follow this idea of slaves, you have to obey your masters because that is your duty and that is also what God wants. Now, it does so in a little less grotesque terms than uh, the way that First Peter presents it, but nonetheless, still extremely troubling passages that have been, been used to propagate a lot of evil throughout history. But this begs the question then, how do we go from the text that we find in 1 Corinthians and Galatians and just the overall Pauline idea that social distinctions don't matter and that in Christ everybody is equal to what we find in Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Timothy, Titus, and, and also 1 Peter for that matter? Well, here is, and we touched on this in the pastoral epistle series as well, this plays into one of the reasons why a lot of scholars reject the Pauline authorship of, of these texts, because they seem to show a market shift from this more uh, eschatological, meaning related to the end of the world, uh, worldview that Paul has, which essentially, to put it very simply, Paul thinks the end of the world can come at any moment, and thus the way that he talks about these subjects is not with a long-term view in terms of like how are we going to establish a community and live in the normal everyday world for the next 20, 30, 40 years. He's, uh, he has a much shorter window than that, uh, to put it one way, whereas the, the texts in the Pauline Pseudepigrapha, they seem to be talking about institutions that are firmly in place and that are going to be firmly in place for the foreseeable future. And so they're starting to tackle some of these problems that come up when you have a movement that started as more of this eschatological type movement um, and apocalyptic perhaps would be a, another word to throw in there to this more institutionalized form of Christianity, which we're dealing with the fact that contrary to Paul or what some other Christians might have believed about the, the beliefs and sayings of Jesus or other early Christian leaders who we have no writings from, that they were saying that the world was going to end any time, get ready, um, prepare yourselves, et cetera, et cetera. But after who knows when these texts were written, but let's say late first century, 
you're talking about, you know, these, these Christians are waiting 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, et cetera, et cetera, after the death of Jesus. And these events still have not come to pass. And so you go from what we find in first Corinthians, uh, for example, you know, Paul talks about how prophets, uh, and teachers and people of the congregation have different roles and, He's a lot less concerned with establishing official titles or official offices or an official structure. Again, because all of the advice and instruction he gives is is colored by his uh, his larger worldview, which is that the events of Jesus have happened, introduced this cataclysmic change in terms of the human divine relationship, and as a result, the human to human relationship. And that the most important thing is not not necessarily, you know, about establishing human institutions, because all those things mean nothing, because they're all going to be obliterated when God establishes his kingdom. Now, that's a very simplistic way to put it, but I just want to try to get the point across that what we find in the Pauline state epigrapha is very different and out of character compared to what we find in Paul's authentic letters. And from, in my opinion, at least, it's it's very hard to reconcile that, of course, people can change their minds, they can adapt to circumstances, but what the the, Paul, the Pauline state epigrapha say um, just does not comport with what we find in Paul, and it's hard to imagine such a seismic shift happening for Paul. Um, and that's one of the many reasons why a lot of scholars think these texts were not written by Paul. But they've also come to have a life and impact of their own in that a lot of the uh, terrible things that have been propagated um, in, in within the institution of slavery, as well as many other things, come from the pseudepigraphal text written in Paul's name. And you can sort of trace this development arc from, you know, Paul's authentic letters to Colossians, which was probably the first to be written in Ephesians, to the pastoral epistles, to the writings of uh, Ignatius and Polycarp that come in the early second century. And then you see the development of this official office of bishop and um, just see how the Christian leadership structure um, evolved and solidified during the, the second century, we start to get nibbles of that, little nuggets of that in the, the late first century in these texts. And it's clear that these authors um, were trying to find ways to develop Christianity into something, a, a religion or belief system that can function outside of an apocalyptic worldview. You know, we see something with, uh, for example, the Qumran community and the Dead Sea, the, the community that produced a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Essenes. They were a community that barred themselves off from the rest of Judaism for a variety of reasons, but they also were extremely apocalyptic. They, similar to um, uh, Jesus's message, though, I am uh, very much of the opinion that there is no sort of interaction 
between Essenes and, and Jesus. I don't think Jesus was an Essene or involved with community at Qumran, but they do share a similarity in thought in terms of both being very apocalyptic. And so there's a reason why the Essenes didn't last um, because they were based um, on this apocalyptic worldview. They thought that this um, this this figure was going to come back and essentially rectify things um, and get rid of all of the corruption and other things that they thought were wrong with Judaism, the temple, etc. Now, they did not develop a, a belief system or evolve their beliefs to function in a world where those events didn't happen. And so very quickly that sect um, died off and they left really no fingerprint on things other than uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and what we learn about them from other sources, such as Josephus and Philo of Alexandria and, and other um, writers of that period. Um, but Christianity um, did make that adjustment. And these household codes are, are again, a reflection of how Christianity went from a um, a a sect a, a sect of Judaism that was very cut off from the rest of the world, at least in terms of their belief systems and practices, into a belief system that still did make them pariahs of some sort um, within the the wider world, um, mainly because the vast majority of people around them were pagan. And they didn't really understand either the belief in one God or that they wouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols or did different sexual practices, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it was this shift that allowed Christianity to survive. And so it's really important to contextualize this conversation of, of slavery in the New Testament because we, it, it tells us a couple of things. It tells us one how this these terrible things came to exist in our Bible and how it was then used by many people throughout history for many absolutely terrible things. But it's also a way of understanding why they got there in the first place. And so on the one hand, no doubt that the authors of these texts um wrote down a lot of terrible things, especially from a modern perspective and led to untold suffering uh, and evil that was perpetrated using these texts as inspiration or, or as a defense of their actions and essentially to claim divine favor for what they were doing. But in the historical context of the time, it also, it also makes sense why they were doing what they were doing, because they needed to establish this system that more um, seamlessly fit with the general ideals of the Greco-Roman world. And one of those things was having the household and having a stable household relationship where you had the paterfamilias, the, the, the eldest male, the father at the head, and it was very important to maintain these um, hierarchical relationships of power, particularly between man and uh, uh, husband and wife, children and parents, and slave and master. Because if you had these communities and apparently 
maybe there were some problems with these relationships in early Christian communities where there were people who were rebelling against being held in slavery or women were not keeping silent in church and challenging the authority of men. I mean, there are a lot of um, historical reconstructions that we can we can make with the limited evidence, but there was something that gave rise uh, to the need to um, lay down these, these relationships and, and codify them. And so it, it makes sense that this more institutionalized form of Christianity that we began to see develop after Paul uh, is, ref is more reflective of the quote-unquote norms of, of the larger Greco-Roman world of which they were a part. And that world um, was very much a world of, of slavery, um, of slaves obeying masters, and disobedience being viewed as not only just a bad thing in abstract, but also a, reflect, a bad reflection of the community or the household in the eyes of outsiders, which is something that's talked a lot about in the, the pastoral epistles in particular, in terms of, you know, what outsiders think and not putting people in power in uh, power within the community that can't handle their own household properly in similar passages. So it's that that, that is all to say that there we we don't want to be too simplistic and draw a straight line of development because things are never that simple. But it does seem clear that there is a progression of some sort. And so especially because these texts have had such a large negative impact on the, the human story and especially the place of Christianity and even religion in general on the world and, and as a consequence society today, it's all the more important to understand how these troubling passages made it into our Bible and made it into the New Testament, which a lot of people think as, um, you know, a, a book of love, you know, God is love and there is no room for this relationship between master and slave and these uh, social inequalities that are so antithetical to this idea of freedom in Christ and believers being all equal in Christ, you know, the baptismal formula in Galatians 3. So there's definitely a lot of tension there. And it's, it's one that is impossible to reconcile. And it's something that we will always have to struggle with because it's always going to be in, in our Bibles. What, even though I think all of us would agree that we would rather have a New Testament that did not include these things. We, um, we're, we're, we're stuck with what we were given, um, to, to put a long story short. But again, why I wanted to touch on this subject so much is that one, it's a very important subject, but two, it's also one that has had a tangible impact that everybody can can see, whether it's in history or whether it's um, something that's more personal to them. I mean, this is a question that everybody, whether they're believing Christian or whether they're a believer of any religion or not, uh, can equally come together and and see as a problem and one that um, is worth devoting time to learning about and understanding how it came to be. 
and of course, you know, the thousands, hundreds of thousands of pages that have been written on how these verses have been used are equally as important. But at the same time, tracing the origins and understanding how it came about is also a very important piece of this much larger puzzle that we try to put together as we try to understand how these texts were used, why they were used that way, and ultimately the consequences that they had and the effects that they have, if any, on on the current world and really what that means for us, either as believers of a particular religion or just, you know, somebody living in the world um, who... uh, I'll, I'll use the case of America, I mean the Civil War, and obviously the centrality of slavery within that. Uh, and then the you know all the consequences there are a million different things that you can point to um so with that I, I want to to stop there um and for the the last part of the the series on on slavery, I actually want to go away from the Pauline to pick up a little bit and talk in more of a broad overview about the the gospels and what other um, Christian texts have to say about slavery. Now, I know that I've said that the Gospels don't uh, talk about slavery in the way that we defined it earlier in this episode, but uh, I I think it would be an interesting thought exercise to think about what Jesus might have thought or might have said, Uh, and we'll dive into some passages that might shed some more light on that uh, as well. So looking forward to that. And hope you got something out of this episode and hope you will join us for the final part of our series on slavery in the New Testament.